Good morning, everybody. Um, would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. Go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy. That will be our passage, our primary passage for this morning. 2 Timothy is in the New Testament. It is after. Anybody want to guess? Yes, well done, Dave. It's after 1 Timothy, which is after First uh, and 2 Thessalonians, right in that area, kind of in the, the little back half of the uh, New Testament. Um, wanted to say uh, a thank you to everybody who was praying for me. Uh, many of you know, been the last couple weeks been dealing with a little health issue with a kidney stone. And on Tuesday, it passed, and so I'm feeling so much better Yes, thank you. Thanks, Jonah. Um, feeling so uh, incredibly better. Actually, on Wednesday, I felt like about normal, or as normal as my 43-year-old body has ever felt. Like, you know, and um, I felt uh, really good Wednesday, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, Matt Freiberg asked me to, to sub for the soccer league that he is in, and so I went, and I actually played soccer on Wednesday night in a league for like the first time in three years. And, uh, and I was like, Matt, I'm totally, you know, I'm out of shape, man. And I just asked the kidney stone. He's like, oh, we're all out of shape. And I'm like, yeah, you and your 20-something-year-old friends out of shape. It's not the same as my 40-something, you know, out of shapeness. But uh, well, we had a great time. And I'm actually filling again this week again. Well, too, I'm excited about that. I actually played golf on Thursday uh, afternoon. I mean, that was fun. And then, I mean, I was feeling so good. And I told my father-in-law, and he's like, great, you're feeling that good. Why don't you come and help me lay a whole bunch of bricks? And so, oh, yeah, I couldn't, I, you know, I was saying how good I felt. I couldn't back out of that one. So I spent all day yesterday in Indiana uh, laying a big a brick uh, pavement and sidewalk or whatever. And so, so I'm feeling good. So thank you. I'm so glad to be back. Um, uh, let's uh, let's begin um, with a, a quote, shall we? We're in a brand new series, by the way, uh, called Your Word is Truth. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. Uh, our passage is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, will be uh, the chapter that we'll be in. But I want to begin with a quote. It's a quote written in 1978, 36 years ago. Wow. Um, long time. And the quote goes like this. The authority of Scripture is a key issue for the Christian church in this and every age. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are called to show the reality of their discipleship by humbly and faithfully obeying God's written word. To stray from Scripture in faith or conduct is disloyalty to our Master. Recognition of the total truth and trustworthiness of Holy Scripture is essential to a full grasp and adequate confession of its authority. This is the opening paragraph to uh, a statement known as the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and I will say more about that uh, soon. But that opening line, the authority of Scripture is a key issue for the Christian church in this age and in every age, and this was being written, you know, a couple of generations ago, perhaps, 20, 36 years ago. And I think that many of us would take that statement as a given, right? Many in this kind of nod, if you would take that as 
kind of the standard uh, way that Christians should view the Bible. That believing the Bible is in what it teaches is an important part of what it means to actually be a Christian, correct? We'd all agree with that. But sadly, there are many today who do not feel the way that is represented in that quote. Although this is written 36 years ago, the challenges that that quote uh, is addressing, that this document was addressing, um, is still vibrant and it's still alive and active today, and actually even more so uh, than ever. There are many today who, instead of ascribing to this quote, who wouldn't, who would not, who would just disagree with what this quote is saying, uh, attempt to challenge the Bible, not with an outright denial of the Bible, but rather by denying some of the key understandings of what the Bible is, what its very nature is. They don't reject God. They don't reject Jesus. I'm not talking about atheists here. I'm talking about those in the church, those who, uh, who do not reject God, who do not reject Jesus, and they don't entirely reject the, the Bible. They still claim the name Christian. And many of them would still even claim the name evangelical. I know some of you might know what that word means, many of you. Um, they would claim those terms, and they still want to follow Jesus. However, they have a little problem with that type of understanding with with how people would have traditionally viewed what the Bible is and namely that they would deny what is known as the inerrancy of the Bible say that word with me inerrancy right means without error in other words they believe the Bible has errors but believing the Bible has errors in their mind uh, does not equate to the denial of Christ or to the faithfulness uh, uh, to or to faithful Christianity. They don't believe that. So I want to give you a most recent example. Here's a here's a guy by the name of Steve Chalk. Is this name familiar or face familiar with, to anyone in you? Well, it's okay if it isn't because Steve Chalk is from the United Kingdom. He is English. He's a British Baptist minister. He's a social activist. He's very outspoken leader in the evangelical church in the United Kingdom. He's the author of over 40 books. He's uh, a leader of the senior leader of a church called Oasis Church in Waterloo, which is kind of like a suburb of London. He uh, is actually a special advisor on um, a community action against human trafficking team at the United Nations. It's a very influential, very powerful person. He's a very well-known TV personality in the United Kingdom. And he was actually even awarded the, uh, the MBE by the Queen, which is, I think, the most excellent order of the British Empire. You know, like, well, why don't we have that in our country? You know, the MBE after their name or something. And he actually even, uh, this is another little interesting fact, he was one of the people who was selected to carry the Olympic torch when London hosted the game just a couple years ago in 2012. So very prominent figure, a very, um, we probably wouldn't know him because we're on this side of the pond, but he was, he's a very prominent figure. However, in 2003, he wrote a, a kind of a controversial book at that time called The Lost Message of Jesus where he was questioning the work of the atonement of Christ on the cross. As a matter of fact, he called it or referenced uh, the way we would look at what 
Christ has done on the cross. It's kind of taking our punishment uh, in, in our place, the one we should receive, and that he took it. He calls, referred to it as divine child abuse in that book. Very controversial. In 2013, he came out in uh, support of same-sex relationships. But most recently, just a couple of months ago, in February 2014, he issued an article which is basically it was a proposal or a manifesto, we could say, um, that amounts to a manifesto on how we should view the Bible. And what it amounts to is an outright rejection of the Christian teaching, the evangelical teaching that the Bible is inerrant or infallible. As a matter of fact, let me just read to you a couple of quotes from that proposal, this article. He had 20, uh, 20 principles he outlined. And here's principle number four. He says, we do not believe that the Bible is inerrant or infallible in any popular understanding of these terms. The biblical texts are not a divine monologue where the solitary voice of God dictates a flawless and unified declaration of his character and will to their writers, nor are they simply a human presentation of and testimony to God. Rather, the Bible is most faithfully engaged as a collection of books written by fallible human beings whose work at one and the same time bears the hallmarks of the limitations and preconceptions of the times and the cultures they live in, but also of the transformational experience of their encounters with God. The point I want you to notice is we do not believe that the Bible is inerrant or infallible in any popular understanding of these terms. Here's principle number five. He doesn't number them, but the, the fifth paragraph. He says this. We celebrate the Bible as inspired by God, who chooses dialogue over monologue. Okay, so he says he believes the Bible is inspired. As such, we recognize that it contains various, sometimes harmonious, sometimes discordant, sometimes even contradictory voices each of which contributes to the developing story of humanity's moral and spiritual imagination through this conversation is challenged, stretched, and constantly enlarged. So he celebrates the Bible as being inspired by God, he says, but I'm not sure I understand exactly what he means by that because although he says it's inspired, he just previously stated that it has errors in it. He doesn't believe that it is inerrant. He doesn't believe that it is infallible. A little bit later in this article, he says that it, the Bible is certainly not flawless. And so if God has inspired it, but at the same time it has errors or is misleading, he's allowing both views to, to be, he's trying to advocate both views. Additionally, before he outlines all of these 20 principles, for how we should view the Bible. He rattles off a litany of the ways in the which he believes that the Bible uh, has contradictions, has errors, has mistakes, and has major moral problems. I mean, he outright will say there's parts of the Bible that are just immoral for God to say or to do. And he doesn't just say that, not like in a couple of places, quote, many places. Now, Steve Chalk, why do I bring up Steve Chalk, a guy who's across the pond, you know, to begin our series and talking about the Bible, what the Bible says about itself. The reason I 
kind of bring up Steve Chalk is just merely because he's the most recent. He's not alone. There is a long line of people that are in the church, claim the name Christian, even claim the name evangelical, but yet would advocate positions about the Bible very similar to Steve Chalk's. Some of his close uh, associates are like people like Tony Campolo, Brian McLaren, Rob Bell. They've all issued similar sounding arguments to this sort of thing. But Steve Chalk seems to be drawing the most attention, and the reason why is because probably because of his high visibility uh, of who he is as a per major personality, but also because this is really a direct challenge, a direct challenge to how we should look at the scriptures. So this series, we're going to be looking at the Bible. We're going to be looking at what the Bible says about itself. And we plan on going like through uh, maybe to July, middle of July. I mean, I just have, I have several of the messages sketched out. We'll see how long this series goes. And at the end of the series, we're going to kind of open it up to hear questions. Like we've done this before where people write their questions that they have. Um, they, you enter into conversations with people about some of these things, and you don't know what to say. And you go, I've always wished I had some questions. We're going to open up the series uh, to that as well. But let me chart the course of where we're going. Next week, um, we're going to be looking at how Jesus viewed the scriptures. Because if we're followers of Christ, we trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior. It might be helpful to look at how Jesus looked at the scriptures. And we might be interesting to compare the ways that Steve Chalk and others are suggesting we look at the scriptures. How well does that line up with Jesus? Does Jesus affirm that? So we're going to be looking at that next week on Memorial Day. We'll do a little slightly different angle. We're going to be looking at the story of Josiah and what happens and how it is possible to lose God's word. That's going to be a fun one. I've always wanted to preach this for years. Uh, on June 1st, we're going to be doing a baptism teaching, so we'll divert from this series. But in June 8th, we're going to be uh, asking the question, who wrote the Bible? Who's the divine author? Who's the author? Is it just human authors like uh, Chalk would have us? See, or is there a divine author behind it? June 15th, I don't know yet. I'll find out. But June 22nd, we'll be asking the question, what's wrong with loving the Bible? June 29th is our baptism celebration. More on that uh, in the weeks to come. And then in July, we're going to be looking at some of the critics and we'll be answering some of the major objections that people would have to this view. And then uh, July 13 or so, we'll open it up to questions. Um, to, to hear, this is your chance to submit. This is our chance to, to have a dialogue about this. But this morning, we're going to be looking at what the Bible is. Fundamentally, what the Bible is. And namely, in particular, it's revelation and inspiration. Revelation and inspiration. So, we're going to be going through uh, a lot of material pretty quickly. We'll be drinking from the fire hose a little bit. And so... Um, if I'm going too fast, just kind of raise your hand and I will slow down, okay? But otherwise, I'm going to kind of plow through many things here before we get to our text. So let's begin with general revelation. It's kind of one of the fundamental uh, things that the, uh, the scriptures identify for us is that God has revealed himself. You can follow along in the handout or put notes in, the, in your uh, the handout as well, too. 
general revelation. God has actually revealed himself, and this in a nonverbal way. Okay? Let me give you an example. God has given knowledge of his existence and his character and his moral law. He's given that to all of us. He's given it to all of humanity in a very general, nonverbal way. As a matter of fact, Psalm 19, the psalmist writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. There's a sense in which all of creation kind of testifies to a creator. That's what the psalmist says. Paul, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, he says uh, something very similar in verses 19 and 20. He says, what can be known about God is plain to them, meaning human, humanity, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So God reveals himself through his creation. Psalm 19 and Romans 1, verses 19 and 20. Paul concludes, by the way, he says, so men are without excuse, he says. So God reveals himself a little bit about his knowledge. He reveals knowledge about his existence, his character, his moral law to all of humanity. He does it through creation, but there's a second way as well, too, through our consciences. God reveals himself through our consciences. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law, the law was God's you know, spoken word to the people of Israel. He says, but if they didn't have that, by nature, they do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law. Verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So God's work, his moral the moral sense of right and wrong that uh, derives from a, a holy and morally perfect God is actually implanted in everybody. So we have general revelation, nonverbal revelation. It's seen through creation. It's also th seen through our consciences. But general revelation is not enough. God has not just revealed himself uh, just in what he has made or just by the, our consciences, God has actually revealed himself verbally. In other words, God is a speaking God. God speaks. And there are many ways in which God speaks that are testified through the Bible. Here's a couple of ways in which uh, that are referred to as the word of God. It occurs hundreds and hundreds, maybe even over thousands of times in the New and Old Testament, though, all through the Bible, this phrase, the word of God, or the word of the Lord, or God said, or God spoke. First one is God through decrees, where God just speaks a decree, not necessarily talking to somebody in a personal address. He just says something. For example, how in creation, before humans were ever even made, God says, and let there be light. There's words on God's lips, so to speak. God is speaking something. Let there be light, and there was light. God issues a decree. He just says it, and that is the word of God. So there's decrees, but um, there is also direct speech where God actually says something to different persons. For instance, God is recorded as speaking to Adam. 
God shows up, speaks to Adam. He speaks to Eve. He actually speaks even to the serpent in the garden. He speaks to Abraham. He speaks to Moses. God spoke directly to persons all through the, uh, all through the scripture. So God speaks via decrees. He speaks via a direct speech to, to persons. Um, he also speaks through intermediaries or spokespersons, or we would say prophets. So God spoke, a word of the Lord came to Samuel, or the word of the Lord came to Nathan, or the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, or the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, etc., etc., etc. So God spoke to them, and then they spoke that word from God to other people. That's God speaking through intermediaries. So God speaks decrees, he speaks direct personal address to people, and he also speaks through intermediaries. God is a speaking God. This is really, really clear and hard to miss throughout the whole Bible, right? It's almost like, okay, Aaron, you can move on because, I mean, it's so redundant. Yet, we have to kind of pause on this a little bit. And all of those things that I just said are, are the word of God, but God has also taken those words and providentially saved them in writing. He has written those things down, the things that he has said. God has preserved that word in writing. By the way, let me back up a little bit as well, too. God not only speaks through decrees and personal address and uh, through intermediaries. Hebrews tells us that God has spoken finally and definitively in a person, his son. It says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, so God is a speaking God. It's at Hebrews 1.1. That's how it begins. In many ways and in the past, this is how God has done it. But in these last days, he has spoken definitively, finally, completely in a son whom he has appointed the heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. That's why Jesus is referred to as the word of God. And so God has taken that word, that all of it points to Jesus, and he has preserved that word in writing. His revelation, his speech, and especially in terms of his son, Jesus, in writing. And that writing we know as scripture. Or graphe is the Greek word for it, writing, scripture. It's always it's used in the New Testament, always for the scriptures. Or the other term is the Bible. The Greek word there is biblos. means Bible. It means a book. Matter of fact, that's the very first word of the New Testament. Matthew's gospel begins with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So the Bible is, uh, Steve Chalk is right. It is a collection of different books. 66 books total, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, spanning a period from when the first one was written to the last one was written was 1,500 years, maybe a little bit more, dozens of authors, human authors, but still one author behind them all, and that is God. So the word of God written is the same as the scriptures, which is the same as the Bible. We need to begin there before we go to our passage this morning, which is in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. 
Now, let me give you a little sketch before we read our scripture of kind of the flow of 2 Timothy. This is 2 Timothy because this is Paul writing to his protege, Timothy, who was kind of his co-worker. He had left to kind of, kind of plant and organize a church in one of the places where Paul started a church. 1 Timothy is the first one. He may have written more, but these are the, the only two that we have that is preserved for us in the scriptures. And he begins with an opening, and then he has an ex exhortation for Timothy to endure, to continue for the gospel. He's thankful for Timothy's faith. You see this in chapter 1. And he calls him to bold endurance in the ministry through chapter 2. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, he says... What is common, I think, in every church in every age is you're going to have to deal with false teachings. And so he contrasts uh, uh, with the teaching that is done by false teachers in chapter 2. He gives a description of the false teachers in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 through verse 9. And it's, in the, uh, it's on the heels of this discussion in this description about false teachers that Paul naturally just leans right into the scriptures and describing the scriptures and as an exhortation for Timothy to be in contrast with the false teachers of verses one through nine he says but you're not going to be like that you're going to hold on to the scriptures hold fast not only to his example Paul says my example but also to the scriptures and with that let's read Verses 10 through 2 Timothy, chapter 10, chapter 3, verse 10 through 17. You, this is Paul writing to Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, if you want to know what he's talking about there, those are recorded for us in the book of Acts, chapter 13 and 14. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, this is where he gets to the meat of what he's saying in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That's the reading of God's word. So here, let's look at a little bit. A couple of things that we learned from this passage as uh, 
Paul is exhorting Timothy to remain faithful to the words. In contrast to the false teachers who are being deceived and they're doing deception and it's kind of a downward negative spiral. When, you, when you're deceiving other people, you yourselves believe it and then you get deceived. He says, no, you stay away from that because from infancy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. The, the holy scriptures, which is able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. And our key verse here is verse 16. All scripture. He just kind of says this as, you know, kind of as part of this whole argument. All scripture is breathed out by God. So I want to unpack that a little bit. Scripture is breathed out by God. The word there, that, that whole quotation, um, is actually one Greek word. I'll teach you a Greek word today. You're going to say this. So say, theopneustos. Theopneustos. All right, one more time. Theopneustos. Okay? Only occurs one place in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, Greek scholars haven't seen this word anywhere else in the great Greek literature of the ancient world. It's almost like Paul was coining this term for the very first time. When he's describing scripture, he's like, how do I describe it? Well... Uh, it's actually a combination of two words, theos, you know, theology, study of God, theos is the word for God, it's a noun, and pneuo, which means to, to blow. Actually, it doesn't mean to inhale, it means to exhale. Everybody exhale a little. That's pneuo, I blow. And so this is kind of, Paul's like, what, what kind of term can I use for this? It's like God breathed it out. Which would make sense if God is a speaking God, right? How many of you, how many words are you able to say if you were to hold your breath while saying it? You know, you can't really do that. It's, so there's this deep connection between breathing out and speaking. How many of you can say words while you're inhaling? That does, it doesn't work. It's breathing it out. And this is the word that's usually, you hear in a, a couple of other translations, like the NIV also, all the NIV versions, because um, there's like four of them there, um, is God breathed. So it's the same, it's similar to, to the ESV that we're using today. Um, the New American Standard, New Living Translation, uh, NRSV, have the word inspired by or of God. That's the typical word that's used, inspiration. Um, which is not a great word, although that's the one that's used kind of as the technical term for what God has done in the scriptures, because inspiration means to breathe in, where it's kind of more precisely to breathe out. Um, the King James, you know, has, is given by all scripture, is given by inspiration of God. So the first thing we need to know about what this, the scripture is, is that it is breathed out by God. Okay? It is, it's from God. It's not from man, although there are human authors who are writing this down, and God's not overriding their personality. We're going to get into that later. But all of this is from God. Peter kind of says something uh, similarly in 2 Peter chapter 1, and this is what we're going to be looking at in June in a couple of weeks. Um, but Peter says uh, this, 
knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Scripture is breathed out by God. It's from Him, and not primarily from man, which is interesting because as you read Steve Chalk's proposal, very rarely does he give the suggestion that we need to view this as from God. Instead, we need to look at it as this collection of human authors testifying about there's some kind of conversation. It's not a monologue. It's a dialogue. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not so sure about that. Certainly, you wouldn't get that from what Paul is saying here in 2 Timothy. So that's the first thing that we notice is that Scripture is breathed out by God. But secondly, it is Scripture that is breathed out by God. I know it looks like the same sentence as his. I'm just putting a different accent on it. It is Scripture that is breathed out by God. Okay? Again, you're like, okay, that seems pretty obvious. But I point this out because there are some who say, well, the human authors wrote it, but then God kind of breathed into what they already wrote. Or some will say, yeah, the, the human authors wrote it. And then when we read it, God uses it kind of in a supernatural way. And so he like inspires us in our reading of it. Right? Um, some a scholar named Karl Barth, the beginning of the 20th century, um, used to say, well, Scripture isn't God's Word. It contains God's Word. Like, it's in there somewhere. There's a kernel, there's kernels of truth. And when you read it, you, you come to understand which part. Of, all of those views allow, kind of accentuate the human side of the Scripture and kind of minimize or downplay God being in all of the Scripture, right? So that's why he says, it doesn't say um, that... It doesn't say the authors were theopneustos. It doesn't say um, it contains theopneustos. It contains some God-breathed parts. He says it's the writings, the graphe. As a matter of fact, in verse uh, 15, he uses a different term, the sacred writings. He uses a slightly different word there. It means the letters, the words, the sentences, the punctuation. We're going to look at here in the coming weeks at how even down to the tenses of verbs are important and breathed out by God. Even punctuation is breathed out by God in the original manuscript. So we're, You're going to get me off, and it's Mother's Day, and so I know that we can't go too far on a tangent here. But, but it's the writings themselves. It's the graphe, the writings that are breathed out by God. Third point, it is all Scripture is breathed out by God. Paul adds a little small, little three-letter Greek word, all. All. It doesn't say parts, not sections, not a container of God's Word. All of the Scripture is breathed out by God. The fancy way to say this, to describe all three of these points here, is known as verbal plenary 
inspiration of scriptures. You want to go dig into the weeds of kind of the, the textbooks or whatever. They would refer to this as verbal, plenary inspiration. Verbal means it's the words. It's the actual words written down. Plenary means plen, you know, full. Full or uh, the whole or all. And inspiration is this is the, that theos nusos. Verbal, ins, verbal, plenary inspiration of the scriptures. And notice what the scriptures do. Paul continues, that's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And look at the sufficiency even of scripture, that the man of God may be competent for every good work. Not many, again, all. So when you think of what Paul is talking about here, he's really magnifying these holy scriptures, God's word written down for us in this, in this form. He, he's not minimizing this or any way. He's saying this very, very strongly, which is why he can continue to say what he says in chapter 4. To, to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Now remember, the chapter divisions, that's a later... Uh, Later invention, that's not part of the original of the New Testament. So sometimes we see the big number there and we quit reading. But Paul is saying one big statement here. Right on the heels of talking about Scripture being breathed out from God, he says, I charge you urgently, I stress this very importantly, in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach it. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and ex exhort with complete patience and teaching. And then he gives this warning. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's all connected. This is all connected to this view of Scripture. God's Word is breathed out by God. All of Scripture is breathed out by God. So let's go back to Steve Chalk's little quote here for a moment. We do not believe that the Bible is inerrant or infallible in any popular understanding of these terms. This, I think, is a terrible mistake. This, I think, is not good advice. This is not good advice for us. This is not good advice for anyone, not just us, not just what's happening in this room. This isn't good advice for anyone. Because you tend to say, well, it's inspired, but it's full of errors. I just want to say, how do you know which parts are errors and which parts aren't? How do you know? And... What if somebody thinks it's an error, but somebody thinks that the other part's true? And how, how this is opening up a huge, huge problem. I think to contrast this, let's go back to the statement that I began with, the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy. There they have 19 articles. Steve Chuck had 20 principles. I was like, he kind of was contrasting the 19 articles of this and then added the next one. Maybe, I don't know. Um, but let me just read a couple. Let's read these together. Just to contrast to what, what Steve Chalk would have. Article 1, let's say this. We affirm that the Holy Scriptures 
are to be received as the authoritative word of God. We deny that the scriptures receive their authority from the church, tradition, or any other human source. That's an important one. These, these articles each have an affirmation and a denial to kind of really clarify some things. But the word of God, he says, it's authoritative. But notice what they say in Article 3. Let's say this together. We affirm that the written word in its entirety is revelation given by God. We deny that the Bible is merely a witness to revelation or only becomes revelation in encounter or depends on the responses of men for its validity. Steve Chalk had said, well, this is a conversation, it's a dialogue, and this is a record of human interaction with the divine. Well, without denying that we're dealing with humans here, um, I think it's quite a bit less dialogue than, than it is monologue. And then skip down to Article 7. We affirm that the whole of Scripture and all its parts down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. We deny that the inspiration of Scripture can be rightly affirmed of the whole without the parts, or of some parts, but not the whole. These three statements, I think, encapsulate a little bit what Paul has written for Timothy and has written for us here as well. So God's word, the big takeaway, the scriptures that we have are God's word written and written for us. They are authoritative for us and authoritative in our life. This is God speaking through them. Now we have to interpret it. We have to understand what it's saying. We have to, we have to do those kinds of things, but we, ha- we cannot... Um, Reject the idea that uh, this isn't God fully speaking to us in his scriptures. These are his words. And what an encouragement that is to all of us. We have God speaking right in your hand. Right? If you brought your Bible and you're holding it, look down. We have God speaking. The same God that spoke to Adam and Eve the God who spoke to Abraham, the God that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, we have that. What a privilege. And we have also the confidence in what this word teaches, and it all points to Christ and his love for us, demonstrated for us. All of the Old Testament is pointing to this deliverer who is going to come and rescue his people. And the deliverer has come. His name is Jesus. And he died on a cross for us. Was buried and was raised again for the third day. All of which was spoken of in the scriptures. God has demonstrated his love for us. And then he wrote it down. Reminds Reminds me of the song. Jody was playing this song last week, just you know, on the piano, and I was sitting there thinking, "What a great song! It's a kid's song." Um, but I was like, "You know what? I think we need to go ahead and come on." I, I think 
wouldn't it be great if we're doing this series on the Bible to sing this song? Jesus loves me. This I know. Why? For, do you not know this one? Okay, all right, let's do it then. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. It's a kid's song. But I think let's not overlook the profoundness of what that line says. So let's do something a little unique and unusual today. Let's stand and let's sing that song. Father God, we say this, uh, I say this many times when I stand up to preach. These, what a delight this is to come to your word, to hear your voice speaking to us. And thank you for the reminder of the importance that we see that all of your scripture, all that you have written down is from you. It's not man's thoughts, not his grappling with you and then writing that down. It's not a monologue contribution, human thoughts and insights sprinkled with your thoughts and insights. This is your word to us. And we're thankful for what this word does, the power that this word has to transform us, to confront us, to change us. It doesn't just speak things that we want to hear and um, we want to believe and affirm what we want to know, but it challenges us and confronts us with the ways in which we don't live up to you. It confronts us with our sin, but it also reveals to us a Savior in Christ Jesus. We thank you, God, for your word, for what it teaches us. And God, as we continue on in this series to dig down deeper into what your word says about itself, God, we ask that even now by your spirit, you equip us to to hear and to receive what it is you say. Open up our eyes and our minds Help us to appreciate that you have spoken. You have spoken to us. You've spoken in a son. And you've written that down for us. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen and Amen. It's a reminder that our offering box is in the back. Also a reminder as well that uh, these books, new book that just came out last week by Kevin DeYoung that's going to be talking a lot about some of the same things we're going to be addressing in this series. Please take one. There's also a free study guide that we were able to acquire as well too. And get together with somebody. Get to Starbucks. um, Shake and shake. Wherever. I don't know. Go, Go get together with somebody and read these chapters together and talk about them. Um, with with others in, in community. Now, uh, may 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of us as we go.